0: Well, as we jump back into our sermon series, Living in God's Grace, Counseling the Word of God, uh, the whole goal is to learn how to counsel the Word of God to ourselves and then to one another. And then for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the fact that God is faithful to His people in salvation, but not only in salvation, but then also in sanctification. Or what that means is God setting about the task to make us holy, teaching us to rely on Him Who never fails. And we saw last week that God even uses the trials to wean us from the world and then to Him. From all the stuff that He knows will fail us, and then He weans us to Him who never will. And you hear that uh, even in the things that we're singing about, the things that Raj, our service leader, was speaking about. And this morning, we see that no matter what trials and temptations we face, We can indeed face the situation with courage in Jesus Christ. That's what we see this morning. No matter what trials and temptations we face, we can face the situation with courage in Jesus Christ. This morning's passage can be found in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. And if you're using one of the black Bibles in front of you, it's found on page 957. So we've been looking at this passage for the last couple of sermons Uh, And this morning, we finally get the opportunity to finish it off. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And this is what it says. Um, Actually, let's start at 12. It says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So once again, no matter what trials and temptations we face, with Jesus Christ, we can face any situation with courage because Christ always gives us a way out. So that verse alone is supposed to bring us great confidence in the Christian walk. Because we know sometimes as we're wrestling with various sins, we can struggle with a sense of ungodly condemnation, a sense of ungodly guilt, as if God doesn't love us, as if he doesn't have the power to rescue us. But here we are to be lifted up and empowered to face our situations, the trials and temptations with courage. And crucial to us having confidence in the Christian walk is knowing what the way out is. Knowing what the way out is. This brings us to point number one. So last week we saw that God provides a way out. And today, our first point here, we look at what the way out is. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide you a way out that you may be able to endure it. Some people think the way out here that he's talking about is an escape hatch out of sin, in every trial and temptation, God sets up this escape hatch so we can escape sinning. And therefore, it is possible to be sinless. But is that what this passage means? The answer is no. And I think the context of the passage gives us the answer. Paul is addressing a specific situation to the Corinthian church. So right when, when the authors of Scripture write, they're generally writing to a specific situation. And we see this that taking place in, in this letter to the Corinthians. So some of the Corinthian church were making excuses for their sin. And they were saying, look, in our circumstances, in our, in our trials, we had to sin. There was no other choice. So let's let's make this real. Imagine a girl who's peer pressured into getting drunk. In my backslidden days, I had a number of friends who would peer pressure me into getting drunk as well, particularly when I was wrestling with, okay, what does it actually look like for me to... Regardless of the things that I'm wrestling with, submit my life to Jesus Christ. And one of the issues that I was wrestling with was drunkenness. So you know, just imagine a girl or myself being peer pressured into getting drunk, and so this girl so so desperately wants to fit in with everybody around her, and so she rationalizes away her sin, making excuses. I had no choice. Imagine that situation happening. That's what happened here in the Corinthian churches. They're going up to the pagan temples. And then having the feasts that are dedicated to those pagans. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, comes along and says, Look, you always have a choice, guys. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able. And so you're able to face every situation with courage in Christ. God always provides options and choices. Along with the temptation, it says, He will provide a way out. That you may be able to endure the trials, the social pressures that you find yourself in, and the situations that you come in contact with. So here he's trying to get the Corinthians back into the game. Back into the fight of faith, so to speak. So they can't claim exemption from fighting the fight of faith. And no Christian can. The conclusion is, the way out does not mean that Paul is talking about a potential for sinlessness. Others read this verse and they conclude that God wants to give us a trial-free life. A trial-free life. That's what we should be striving for. But this is certainly not the case either. First, because God actually uses trials to refine our faith. We know that from from Scripture here. From this passage, it says God will not let you be tempted. So you see God's sovereignty even over uh, the trials that we experience. We saw that too in the book of James here. God uses the trials that we experience to refine us in our faith. And it says there, God will not let you be tempted, but he will make with the temptation also the way out. So you see, again, God's sovereignty, along with making the situation, he also makes the way out. Now we saw in the book of James that we should never say that God tempts us as if he's the one generating our own sinful desires. No, the Bible is very clear. God is a good God. And he never tempts us. In fact, he himself can't be tempted. He can't be tempted. And so, of course, he's not going to tempt other people. But the trials that we experience, which is what the the word temptation can be translated also. It's the same word there in the Greek, temptation, trial. Uh, We see there in 1, chapter 1 of James, verse 12, James, the brother of our Lord Jesus, writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. Alright, so God uses the trials in our lives to refine us in the faith. The second reason why, why it's obvious that God does not want to give us a trial-free life is because that's exactly what He's rebuking the Corinthian Christians for doing. Think back to our example about the girl who couldn't stop herself from getting drunk as she's justifying her own sin. I mean, why does she do that? Why does she justify... Her own sin. Or why did she sin in the first place? Or think about your own situations. Why is it that you justify your own sin? Why is it that you say, I didn't have a choice? Or you rationalize away your sin. It's because we would rather avoid potential rejection or we would rather avoid potential confrontation that comes with the cost of holiness, isn't it? That's why they're justifying their sin. It's not that we don't have a choice, so we can never claim exemption from any particular sin. It's that we would rather choose friendship with the world than obedience to Jesus Christ. We would rather be in harmony with the world than in harmony with Jesus Christ. We would rather have our friends say, you know, you're the man, drink that 40. We would rather do that than hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? So you see what's going on here. The Corinthians are the ones who are trying to live a trial-free life and then trying to excuse away their sin. But that's the exact reason why Paul says, basically, brothers and sisters, get back in the fight. So this brings us to, we're still on point number one here. What exactly is the way out, according to the passage? What exactly is the way out? Well, it is a choice to do something other than sin. It's, It's really simple. What exactly is the way out It's a choice to do something other than sin. And this choice to do this other option helps us to endure the situation. God will make, with the temptation, the way out, with the purpose that, if you look at the other verse, that you be able to endure the temptation. So enduring does not necessarily mean escaping entirely, you know, as if the way out is this escape hatch that you just sort of hop into and then you know, poof, you're gone, you you escape entirely. No, he's talking about enduring here. And there's this option, the choice to do something. You want to see what the option is. If you look there in, after verse 13, what is the other option there in verse 14? Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Think about the drunk in this situation. Well, flee from the situation. Don't get drunk. That's the other option. You either obey the world and your own carnal desires, or you can obey God. And so that's the option, the way out that he's putting in front of them. How is it that they embrace the commands of Jesus Christ and so seek to love Jesus Christ, that that would then therefore inform the path that they walk, not in the ways of the world, but in the ways of Jesus Christ. And then this it's tied once again to the endurance. Endure does not necessarily mean escape. Here they're supposed to flee from idolatry, and then also, not only that though, but they go, you know, suffer the consequences that might come with it. Scholars know that this word endure carries the sense of face the situation with courage. Face the situation with courage. And that's exactly what the Christians in Corinth needed to hear. They didn't have courage. They thought their social pressures around them were just too much to bear. So they had to sin. right? They lacked courage. They thought God would not deliver them. And they thought that they were in too deep. So Paul comes alongside of them and says brothers and sisters you have a choice to do something else the choice to follow jesus can you just imagine being in the corinthian christian situation and hearing these words from paul of all people what a blessing a rebuke and encouragement it must have been to hear this from the from the apostle paul himself about facing their situation with courage right here and they're talking about eating at eating at the temples right eating and then you look over to Paul and see all the persecution and the sufferings that Paul had to go through as he faced all the situations with courage. And this must have been a rebuke and encouragement as well. I mean, we have every reason to think that the Corinthian church knew about the sufferings that Paul went to prior to him getting to Corinth. So if you look through the book of Acts, you see there in chapter 17, chapter 18, he suffers. And then he goes to Corinth and typically he's talking about the sufferings that he goes through. We know in 2 Corinthians there, he's writing to the church about all the sufferings he goes through. There's a whole laundry list of, of bad things that happened to him, but yet he persisted in them all, relying on God's grace. In, other, in another letter, 2 Timothy 2, this is the last letter that, he, that we have of his. And here he's basically writing his last will and testament to his son in the faith, Timothy He speaks about all the stuff that he endured and how Timothy so intimately was acquainted with who he is. He says there, 2 Timothy 2, verses 10-11, You have followed my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and sufferings. And then he says, which persecutions I endured. It's the same same word here, endure, that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 10-13. He endures the persecutions and the sufferings, and then he goes on to give the word of hope here. Yet, from them all, the Lord rescued me. So, so here, you know, is, is, is Paul thinking that he's going to uh, live a trial-free life? Well, no. Right? Didn't he go through all of the actual trials where people actually beat him, and he actually was imprisoned? And yet somehow he can say, the Lord rescued me, and he endured them. So here this way out involves an enduring, a lasting endurance that walks with Jesus Christ throughout uh, our Christian life here. It's interesting here, you know, in First Corinthians ten thirteen, 13, he's emphasizing God's covenant faithfulness. In Second Timothy 2, where he's talking about all the, the sufferings and persecutions he endured, But yet God rescued him from them all. He also is uplifting the faithfulness of God. Right? You see that there in verse 13. No temptation is overtaking you. That is not common to man. Faithful is God. Or as it says in English, God is faithful to deliver. Last week we saw that God has this unwavering commitment to see us satisfied in what is most ultimately satisfying. Right? Christ himself. He wants us to trust in the one who is most trustworthy, that is God Himself. And we saw there last week that through trials, God weans us from the world and to Him. So if you've ever been addicted to anything, or you can't stop doing something, whether that's playing video games, or uh, you know, you're wrestling with trying to quit smoking, or something like that, you, know, you can think about the intervention. And here God is the great interventionist, intervening to save us from our addiction, so to speak, of all the stuff of the world that leads to death. And in his kindness, in his loving kindness, and all of his knowledge, he comes alongside of us and weans us from the stuff of the world that he knows, once again, that will fail us. And then he weans us to himself. He weans us to all the grace that comes along with living in relationship with Christ, our Savior. You know what this means? Sort of thinking, big picture, we saw that the way out is a choice, a choice to follow godliness. In a big picture, the way out is ultimately... Christ himself. As Paul says in Philippians three eight, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Christ is Paul's way out there. And it's because of Christ that Paul was able to say in Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. How is it? It's because he finds his contentment in Jesus Christ. Which brings us to point number two. Your way out of trials is enduring with Christ through your trials. Your way out of trials is enduring with Christ through your trials. So here we're just thinking big picture stuff. Or I guess to be more clear, Christ enduring with us in the midst of trials is our way out. The way out is Christ enduring with us in the midst of trials. And this makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, Christ himself is the one who comes alongside of us, weans us from the world into himself. But not only does he bring the trial, he also brings himself in the midst of it. And so you see Christ's grace meeting us in the midst of trials. Along with the trial, which is evidence of God's grace, Christ gives himself. He gives his own self to be our grace, or the grace given to us. It's fascinating that in chapter 10, this is exactly what Paul points the Corinthians to there in the beginning. If you look there at verses one to four, he talks about how, you know, the the Corinthian church, he says, you know, not only do you guys have all the benefits of Jesus that uh, are to help you walk in the ways of Christ. He says the Old Testament folks did too, Israel did too. they also had great spiritual blessings from God. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. This is he's talking about when they when God led them out of Egypt. And all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses. This is sort of like a symbolic baptism. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So he says that to the Israelites, you know, as they all came out of Egypt, they knew great spiritual blessing from God. They had spiritual food or the Spirit-given food. They had the bread of heaven there in Exodus chapter 16. They had the spiritual drink, that is, the Spirit-given drink of the miraculous water that flowed from the rock that was struck by Moses. Exodus 17, Numbers 20. And Paul says that the rock symbolized Christ. Christ was with them, so to speak, blessing them, for they all drank, and the rock was Christ. But despite having such great provision from Christ, they, at the end of the day, did not care. They had all these spiritual blessings, but said, what do I care about these things? And so they gave themselves into disobedience, which is this other list here of verses 6 to 10, of how they continued in this willful disobedience against God. And verse 5 says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So they had such great blessings from Jesus Christ, they even had the presence of God, but they didn't care. And God gave them trials to test what was in their hearts, weaning them from the world and to him, but instead they chose to cling to the world, cling to all the stuff that failed them. The good news, you know, there's the bad news, they had all those folks who disobeyed. The good news is that just as some of them chose willful disobedience, there were some who chose endurance with Christ. There were some who clung to Jesus Christ, who found solace in Christ enduring with them in the trials that he brought them. So turn over to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. So turn to the right. After you go through Paul's epistles or Paul's letters, eventually you get to some letters that are just called the general epistles or the general letters. To keep on turning, you get to Titus, you get to Philemon, then you get to the first general letter, that is the book of Hebrews. Now go to chapter 11. <clears throat> so we saw the bad example from 1 Corinthians 10. The fact that there were many who disobeyed God, even though they had great spiritual blessings. Now we see some who endured with Christ. Christ who endured with them. And here we have Moses as a wonderful representative of, of what's going on. Chapter 11 is like this hall of faith. I refer to this often. Look there in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. And their hoped for doesn't mean a potential. It means a guarantee. That is all the stuff that God has promised them. And so then he goes through all of these people. From the very beginning. About, about how all these folks trusted by faith in the promises of God. And then you look over to 23, and you get to Moses, our example. Moses, the representative, the leader of all of Israel. And he says there, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, there's the emphasis, by faith, faith in God, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Right? There's a way out, isn't there? A choice that consisted of not sinning, of not giving into, way, into the way of sin, but instead to be mistreated with the people of God. Uh, There's our hope right here. There's our way out. It's it's obeying God, embracing his commands, and choosing the way of Christ. And then you look there at verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward that God had promised him. There's another way out, right? He's going to choose no. I'm going to choose no to all the wealth in the world of Egypt, the greatest superpower of the world at the time. And instead, I'm going to suffer for Christ, the reproach of Christ, Hebrews says. That's the choice there. Then you look there at verse 29, or by 28, by faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. They obeyed. He obeyed God. Verse 29, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. You see how faith lays hold of Christ who endures with his people? That's what Moses is doing. That's a positive example. And then back in 1 Corinthians 10, we have a negative example. They were not choosing to endure with Jesus Christ. They said no to Christ who offers himself throughout the midst of trials. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, he says there, you see how all this works. Therefore, because of the promise, because of faith, It says that we are to run looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So you see how this works here. Paul directs them, Well, the author uh, author of the Hebrews directs them to something that happened in the past that informs their present as they run towards the future, the final goal of receiving the runner's wreath at the end of the race there. They look to Jesus. And how does that help? Well, you see there in Hebrews 12, who for the joy that was set before him, he too endured. He endured the cross, despising the shame and his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. So just as we lay hold of Christ, the founder and originator of our salvation, so we lay hold of Christ, the perfecter of our salvation. Just as Christ endured the cross in the past, so we have an example to follow in the present as we move forward to the future, facing our situations with courage because Christ himself endured. So we look back at what Christ has done for us, and it helps us face our situations with courage. Our way out of Christ is to lay hold of Christ who endures with us through trial. So now as we move to the practical, we go to point number three, a practical application. It's basically going to take up the rest of the sermon. How does Christ intend for us to lay hold of him? Right? We've been arguing here that, that we are to lay hold of Christ who endures with us in trials. How is it then are we able to lay hold of Him? And we can use all sorts of phrases to replace lay hold of Him. We can use the stuff like commune with Him. Grow in our hope with Him. Trust in Him. Grow in our knowing of Him. Here's the answer in all of its glory. The spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines. Now I know some of you guys might be thinking, this is a let-down answer. The spiritual disciplines? I'm supposed to lay hold of Christ in the midst of all of my trials and temptations that you guys are all facing now through the spiritual disciplines. And if that's you, if you're kind of let down by that answer, I think that just goes to show how, uh, how much of a strange and twisted understanding you have of the spiritual disciplines. If we come to the spiritual disciplines idea and we think these are just things that Christians are supposed to do you know, we, we come to the situation with legalistic and a poor understanding of what they are and how they're supposed to work and how we're supposed to do them. My friends, we do the spiritual disciplines because in them we come to enjoy God. Through the spiritual disciplines, we come to enjoy our God in the midst of the trials and temptations that we, that we experience. And the spiritual disciplines are the very roads... That God himself lays down in his own construction plan the ways that he has designed and determined. He's given them to us so that when we get on the roads of the spiritual disciplines, we, by God's grace, grow in our knowing of him by the power of the spirit. The spiritual disciplines are our our God-given ways of growing in our relationship with Christ, growing in Christ-likeness by the power of the spirit. So if you don't know, if you're sort of new to this spiritual disciplines conversation, here's just a a general uh, definition here given to us by a guy named Don Whitney, uh, a professor, my professor at uh, a school that I went to at seminary. This is what he says. The spiritual disciplines are those personal and corporate disciplines that promote spiritual growth. The spiritual disciplines are those personal and corporate disciplines that promote spiritual growth. Very basic definition here. And if you open up in your bulletins here, I've given you a list, Don Whitney's list, of the spiritual disciplines in the handout here. On one side you've got the church covenant, on the other here you got spiritual disciplines for the Christian life, and then you got spiritual disciplines within the church. So here he's broken up into two categories, us as individuals and then us as a church. Uh, we got there, look, for the Christian life we got Bible intake, prayer, worship, evangelism, serving, stewardship, fasting, silence and solitude, journaling, learning. And then we got stuff for the church, you know, why go to church, baptism in the church, joining a church, listening to preaching in the church, worship in the church, witness with the church, serving in the church, giving to the church, attending the ordinance of the church, that is baptism in the Lord's Supper, fellowship with the church, praying with the church, learning with the church, and research the church. Or his encouragement there is to explore churches before you go out and join them, get to know them, check out their doctrine, this and that. Now, we won't go through all of them in terms of how they help us lay hold of Christ. But you have the book recommendations there. You have the recommended resources. So you guys can buy the books or borrow them from me. Uh, You can read it with your friends here in the church. But for now, we're going to look at the two foundational disciplines of reading the Bible and praying. And see how those function to help us lay hold of Christ who satisfies us in the midst of trials and temptations. So that Christ would be more valuable than all the stuff of the world that we could possibly hope in. Uh, By the way, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus, it's really important to make note here, to underscore the fact that people do not get right with God by doing these things. I know friends who who actually set about their so-called Christian life by thinking that if they do these things, then they therefore are good with Jesus Christ. And so I've had one friend who would wake up and for hours in the morning read his Bible thinking that is what saved him. He'd memorize scripture so diligently every morning for years because he thought that was what what could save him. But he had no relationship with Jesus. He didn't didn't really have a heart relationship with Christ. And so he approached the spiritual disciplines with great legalism. Uh, Friends, if you're visiting once again and know yourself not to be a Christian, let me be clear. Doing these things do not make you a Christian. They don't make you right with God. The only thing, the only work uh, that can make you right with God is the work of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for the sins of all who would repent and believe. That's the work we trust in. These, here, it's just God calling us. These are the ways in which he has established that we would grow in our relationship with him. But friend, if you want a relationship with Jesus, you need to repent of your sins, turn from them, and believe on him for salvation. He offers free and full forgiveness and a reconciled relationship with you. And he does that all in his grace and mercy. The Bible says that he loves, God loves the world, the sinful world, so much so that he sends Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sin, and, and he bears the wrath that we deserved. Because we were the ones who rebelled against the only God, our Creator God. And as he dies on the cross, he bears all the wrath that we deserve. Three days later, he's raised from the dead, showing that payment has been made in full. And now, friend, if you repent and turn from your sins, you too can be saved. That is what gets you right with God, not the spirits of disciplines. But that said, it's very important to know that we are to do these things in obedience to Jesus in effort to grow in our relationship with him. So with that, let's think now about how reading the word helps us cling to Christ who helps us in our time of need. And the way the way Don Whitney describes it, he describes it as Bible intake in general, because he's thinking more than just reading. He's also thinking of uh, meditation. But through the Word, we are reminded about who God is, what He has done, and what He will do. So just think of like a regular relationship with a friend, right? How is it that you can bank on your relationship with your loved one? Well, it's by seeing their track record. You, you know them. You know what they have done. You know what they will do. You know what they've pledged to you. And here, reading the Word is like reading a, a giant, massive love letter, so to speak, of those who are loved by God. The Word of God provides us God's gold medal track record, where time and time again, we see God's faithfulness to his own promises. And once again, this is seen most clearly in Jesus Christ. We saw just as we did in Hebrews, that Christians find power for the race, the race now, our present race, with our hopes set on what's to come in the future, while remembering God's faithfulness to his people throughout the past. And God's faithfulness, his character, helps us in our present. And so when we go to the Word in trials and temptation, we think, okay, it's really hard to understand how is it that... Uh, God's going to deliver me. We can see all of the examples where God has been faithful to him, to His very own self. So take two examples, for example. In, in Romans 8 chapter, sorry chapter eight, verse 11, this is what it says, and look how he roots the Christian in what God's already done in the past, as he hopes the Christians would look forward to the future. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Right? Did Jesus get up from the dead or not? Because if he didn't, then what in the world are we following Jesus Christ for? Paul says we would be the greatest of all fools. But it says there, he who raised Jesus from the dead, past tense, part of the good news of the gospel, will also give you life in your mortal bodies in the future. Right? It helps us in the present. Here's another example. Romans 8, verses 31 to 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? If you're experiencing persecution, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, that's past tense in the gospel, God gives up his most treasured possession in his son to die on the cross for sinners. How is that supposed to affect us now? How will he not also with him graciously Give us all things presently as we look forward to the future. He goes on to say, well, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing in the future can separate us from the love of God. And because he's already given us the greatest thing, the greatest display of love that anyone could ever imagine in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in the word of God, friends, we have a track record of God's covenantal faithfulness, which encourages our own covenantal faithfulness. But not only do we have God's track record to encourage us, we have God's warnings that cut to the heart of our apathy. We have God's rebukes that arrest us in our sin. Right? That's what's going on in 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Flee idolatry. You who don't care, you who are making excuses for the sin, here's an option. Here's your way out. Flee idolatry. In the Bible, we have God's words of encouragement and restoration that ensures us that God has us tight in our times of difficulty and trial, right? God is faithful. He will do it. The Lord will indeed sanctify you until the end. No one will snatch us out of his hand. In God's Word, he presents us his wisdom and judgment so that God's Word would be a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. And so, in battling against sin and temptation, we can wield this Word of God clinging to Christ and learning to trust in Him. Just as David says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Psalm 119, verse 11. And we can do so, trusting God, just as David said, just as David said, more to be desired than are they. That is God's word, His precepts, His statutes. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey. And drippings of the honeycomb. So reading God's word is a foundational way that God intends that we lay hold of him. His promises, seeing what he's done in the past. And here we grow in our relationship with him. And then we can think about prayer too. So we saw saw the Bible, now we're looking at prayer. We can do many things in prayer, like praise God, confess our sin to God. But what I want to highlight is the fact that prayer is a, if you're taking notes here, prayer is a calling upon God... To do what he has promised in accordance with his character. Prayer is a calling upon God to do what he has promised in accordance with his character. And God himself invites his people to do just this. Psalm 50 verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. And we got excellent examples of David doing just this, calling upon God to do what he has promised in accordance with his character. So, for example, we know that God is a God of steadfast love. It says this in countless places in the Old Testament. One of them is found in Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's just quoting from the Old Testament here. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So friends, if you're struggling with some sort of ungodly guilt and ungodly condemnation, thinking that you can't throw off this guilt and condemnation that you experienced because of some sin that you're wrestling with, that you wrestled with maybe even last night, we think, okay, what does that truth written in the Bible have to do with us? How do we take the word of God and use it in prayer so that we pray that God would be faithful to do what he has promised according to his character? Well, David does his justice in Psalm 51. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. He knows that God is a God of steadfast love, and so he prays that God would in fact be a God of steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So here he's just taking God's words and then praying them back to him. And God gets the glory, doesn't he? He says, yes, of course. You know that I am a God of steadfast mercy, steadfast love. I see that you are praying to me that I would do the very things that I am. And so God does these things. And even to the most wicked of people, David himself committed adultery. And in order to commit this great horrible sin of adultery and then try to make it go away, he goes on and murders the man that he committed, uh, the the husband of the wife that he committed adultery with. But yet God is faithful to forgive him. We see also another example, not only is God of steadfast love, we see that God is a God who restores the soul. So imagine, you know, you're feeling darkened. You're feeling maybe under the uh, the prison of sin still, even though God has called you out of the domain of darkness and now He calls you to walk towards Him. How is that? do you get help? Psalm 23 verses 1 to 3 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. So friend, is your soul in turmoil? If you are cut to the quick with conviction... And you feel that the joy of the Christian life is sucked out. Well, you know, who wants to pray in those moments? But yet here, we are commanded, we are called, we are invited to pray for the very deliverance that we know we need. And listen to what David prays. He just simply prays what God has promised. That God would do according to his character. What he's promised, Psalm 51 verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. It's beautiful, isn't it? He knows that God is his great shepherd who restores a soul and so he approaches God and prays that he would do just that. Prayer is a calling upon God to do what he has promised in accordance with his character. Friends, if we are praying in this biblical way, your prayers, John Calvin said, are a testimony that we look hopefully to God for the grace that he has promised. Your prayers, friends, are a testimony that we look hopefully to God for the grace that he has promised. So friends, if you feel down in the Christian life right now, you realize what what Calvin's sentence implies? He says that everybody who's looking at you, yes, they're going to see that you're down. But they're going to see that you rejoice, despite what situation you face, that you rejoice in the grace of God that he has promised in Christ Jesus to those who have turned from their sins and believe. And so they see you. Just as they see themselves. But they see you hoping in something that they don't have. And that boasts in the glory of God, doesn't it? That boasts in the grace of God to meet us. The enduring Christ, our enduring Christ that meets us in our situation of need. And by God's grace, they come to want it. These are just two of the spiritual disciplines that we find in the Bible. They are just two, but they are fundamental, foundational. I mean, doesn't that just entice you to say, how is it that Christ endures with us, that we can endure with Christ and lay hold of Him in worship, in evangelism, in serving? Or you think about us as a church, right? How is it that we can lay hold of Jesus in membership of a local church? Not many people think about that. How is it that we can lay hold of Christ through the preaching, through the singing of the church, through praying with the church? Friends, I would encourage you to think about these things more and buy these books, borrow them, dive into these spiritual disciplines that help you lay hold of Jesus Christ. Still underneath point number three, we want to get to the ultra practical here. If these spiritual disciplines are God's intended means of laying hold of Jesus, how's it going for yourself in training yourself for godliness? How is it in your own training yourself for godliness? This is what Paul tells Timothy there, and by extension he tells us. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, Train yourself For godliness, or discipline yourself for godliness. Exercise thyself, it says in the King James Version, for godliness. And what's crucial here to know is that you, Christian, are to train yourself for godliness by training yourself in godliness. You train yourself for godliness by training yourself in godliness. That's the only way it's going to be accomplished, by God's grace. And this word train and exercise, it conveys what's involved in the life of godliness, doesn't it? It involves discipline, self-control, patience, perseverance, self-denial, unction, dependence upon Christ. It involves a simple fighting. Christian, is this what your life looks like right now? I mean, would your neighbors, your family members, your coworkers, would they testify to see that you are exercising yourself unto godliness? Or would they say that your life resembles more of what it looks might look like to Exercise thyself for worldliness, based on your patterns, based on what you do in the morning, based on your free time, based on your weekends. You know, it's important to see this, to see some of our cultural challenges that work against our training for godliness. You know, we live in L.A., of all places, arguably the world hub of movie and television entertainment culture. And so we want to worship those things, and, and you know the other things that follow this. I would say are vanity, also materialism. So we got entertainment, vanity, materialism. In other words, we got uh, comfort, we got self-absorption, and then we got materialism. And you realize, friends, that our culture spends billions of dollars trying to convince us that life is not lived unless we watch their stuff, buy their stuff. Consume their stuff. I don't think I realized this until I moved out of Southern California. I moved to Washington D.C. and there, there's just—I mean, generally speaking, you got the same sins, but it's a different animal, you know. So, as a personal trainer, thinking about vanity and materialism, for example, you know, as a personal trainer, as I used to work for for a few years, used to work 24 Hour Fitness um, near the coast. I mean, you see what people are really valuing. I mean, they're wearing hardly anything as they go and work out to the gym, right? There, oftentimes you go to the gym to be seen and. And uh, as as personal training often ends up being, it's kind of like a counseling session. So people would kind of express what's going on in their hearts, and their family life, stuff that they wouldn't tell their very own family members. Uh, But but a lot of it is vanity. You can think about what types of surgeries people are having out here. And I have friends from different parts of the country who come to visit and they say, dude, I was at South Coast Plaza and man, there's a lot of people getting surgery for vanity's sake. This stuff wasn't going on in Washington, D.C. as much. You know, you go to the gym there and you got people wearing a bunch of clothing, but they got people who are also wearing the clothing, you know, that boasts perhaps of the organizations that they work for, emblazoned on their chest. There, it seems like people are going after power, control, working, climbing the ladder, maybe putting their self identity not in the way they look, but in the things that they do. Friends, this is LA. For us Southern Californians, you got to know that you are probably more into you and your comfort and your pleasure and your relaxation than you even realize. So, the stark reality, friends, is that the culture has been training you for worldliness in worldliness. So, think about the w- the ways out that you make for yourself in your own struggles. I mean, what do you do when you guys are stressed out? Do you run to a movie? alternate reality as opposed to running to God who who alone restores your souls maybe you run to buying stuff just for the sake of it maybe you run to a 4 dollar sign restaurant in order to satisfy your bellies as if filling the belly actually cures the soul <laughs> if that's you if that's your pattern you realize that you are more into you your comfort your relaxation your entertainment Titillating yourselves than you even realize. And friends, I would throw myself in that boat. What's keeping you from exercising yourself unto godliness? Finding satisfaction in Jesus Christ, then all this other stuff that Christ already knows is going to fail you. You know, most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we would say that we just have low desire. You know, keep in mind that we've been drawn out of the kingdom of darkness, we're walking to, to the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of Heaven, though we we know theologically has already been established amongst us in the church, um, but if we're being honest with ourselves, we would just say we have low desire. Oftentimes, the desire for the stuff of the world draws our attention. You remember, we were referring to Pilgrim's Progress. There's one place in Pilgrim's Progress where a Christian he he is enticed with Vanity Fair. It's like a fair. You know, it's like he's passing through, he knows he needs to get to that, that place with Jesus and walking with Jesus. But yet over here is Vanity Fair, the carnival rides, the carnival games that distract us. And some who follow with Christian actually get taken down. That's us, friends. We live in Vanity Fair. Our desires for other things like sleep or food or sex, comfort, relaxation... Our desire to take care of our problems on our own is greater than our desires for godliness. Uh, frankly, Frankly, we are a lazy people. Again, I throw myself in this boat, but you know who's helped me a lot is a man named John Piper, Pastor John Piper. He's helped me learn in what it looks like to desire God and to find God when I don't desire God. And... He knew in his own heart that oftentimes he did not desire God. And so in those moments, you know, what does he do? What does one do if one doesn't desire God or godliness? You know, many people admit that godliness is not the goal that I have for my morning, for my day, for my evening. You know what he does? He prays. Now, if you've been at this church long enough, you know that I've used this a number of times, but there's been enough people who have come in recently. It's it's, uh, worth repeating, but he prays. Now the fact that he prays might sound a little strange because he doesn't desire God. He doesn't desire to do those things. But yet he does them anyway. And the reason why he prays is because he knows that he has a heart problem. And so he does what only a helpless man can do. Wholly dependent on God's grace, he prays for the grace of God. And this is what he prays. He prays through this acronym. If you're taking notes, just write down I-O-U-S. I-O-U-S. Uh, and these all come from the Bible. So the I, it stands for incline, write down incline. This comes straight out of Psalm 119 verse 36. This is what it says, incline my heart to you, not to prideful gain or any false motive. So he wakes up. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to pursue God. He doesn't want to go for godliness. He doesn't want to exercise himself for godliness. And so he goes to God, (laughs) says pray. He goes to God, relying on holy God's grace Saying, I need your grace, incline my heart to you, O God. Do what only you alone can do as you are sovereign in opening your people's eyes, opening your people's hearts. So that's I, incline my heart to you. Psalm 119, verse 32. Then, is 36. Then he prays, open my eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. I mean, frankly, you know, you might come to doing your devotions in the book of Numbers, or doing your devotions towards the end of the book of Exodus, and you're thinking like, how is this wonderful? But yet it is, as all scripture, God says, points to Jesus Christ and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So he says, open my eyes to behold the wonderful things in your word. Psalm 119 verse 18. He prays that God would sovereignly give him illumination as only God through the Spirit can. And then he prays next, unite my heart to fear your name. Psalm 86 verse 11. Unite my heart to fear your name. Because sometimes my heart's more united with the stuff of the world. And so he approaches God, unite my heart. Incline my heart, open my eyes, unite my heart to fear your name. Psalm 86 verse 11. And then the S is for satisfy me. Satisfy me with your steadfast love. Psalm 90 verse 14. Satisfy me with your steadfast love. Help me understand that the stuff of the world is not worth hoping in. Good reputation is not worth hoping hoping in. Pleasures are not worth hoping hoping in. But Christ and Christ alone, show me, Lord Jesus, satisfy me with your steadfast love because I know that at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So that's what he prays. When he doesn't desire God, he prays that he would desire God. These are the prayers that God would change his heart's desires. And so we too, friends, can approach the spiritual disciplines, number one, in faith, and then number two, relying on God's grace to work through them. So many times we approach the spiritual disciplines as if they were man-made disciplines about as strong as our own efforts, which is not very strong. But they are the very roads God himself has laid down for us by which we come to grow in our knowing of him. So friends, training yourself for godliness is so much more than doing the things that Christians do. It's ultimately about laying hold of Jesus Christ, clinging to Christ, And seeking to be satisfied in Jesus. That's why we need to tend to the heart and pray that God would change us. This comes from one man named Jeremiah Burroughs. This is what he says in relation to tending or preparing ourselves as we go about the spiritual disciplines. He says the reason why people complain so much of difficulty in duty is because their hearts are not prepared. He goes on and gives the encouragement make preparation for holy duties, and you shall have success in holy duties. If we can apply this to the corporate, too. I and mean, what did you do to prepare to come to Sunday morning service? Did you pray at all for your brothers and sisters in the faith that they that the Word of God would strike a chord in their hearts where they would be desiring to be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Did you pray that the Spirit would be working here in this place amongst our very own hearts? That we might long for Christ instead of the stuff of the world. Did you even think to say, hey, should I go to bed early t- tonight? As in last night, because tomorrow I'm to wake up early at perhaps 9.15 or earlier than that, obviously, to get to our equipped class where we can learn about the church. Did you pray for the preacher at all? That he wouldn't be relying on his own strength to deliver these words, but we would be relying on the strength of Jesus, whose very words are the things that I am to preach. If you haven't, then, you know, you've got to be honest, we haven't been making preparation for holy duties here. Perhaps that is why you've not been having success in the holy duties, friends. That is praying. Let we can turn to next reading the word of God, which is this practically, what do we do here? Reading the word of God. A lot of us might approach these things, maybe particularly, uh, those of you who feel the great desire to do or achieve, you think the only time that you can read the Word of God or the only good, a good reading of the Word of God or good devotions are those that last four hours, three hours, two hours, or one hour. But it doesn't have to be that long, friends. Nor does it have to be whole books of the Bible or even whole entire chapters, necessarily. So let me give you some encouragements for your own Bible reading as you seek to lay hold of Christ in temptations and trials. Number one, read regularly make it regular doesn't even have to be one chapter a day it could just be let's say a paragraph there, it could also be one uh, one verse, but whatever you do read it regularly uh, an encouragement I have too is you could read through the passage that's going to be preached on the following week so next week if you turn to the back of your bulletins there you'll see Romans chapter 6 Romans chapter 6 verses 1 to 14 that's the section of scripture that's going to be preached on next week by Ron Brown which is Rob Brown's father here He's going to be preaching to us next week on Romans 6, 1-14. to 14. So let me just encourage you, you know, for the next six days, seven days, just wake up in the morning and read those 14 verses. Which speaks about what it means to be united to Jesus Christ. So that way when you come to church, you're prepared to hear the word. It's, it's one way of making holy preparations for holy duties. And then if you want to, the next week, what are you going to read? Well, you can go on there to May 29, Philippians 1-6. So you can read Philippians 1-6, or the whole section that it comes with, or the whole chapter there. But whatever you are reading, friends, read it regularly. And another thing, you can read it meditatively. Look for a verse to take away with you. A verse to think about throughout your day. A verse that you can mull over and memorize on your commute. A verse that you can pray through. (coughs) So you want to read regularly, read meditatively. And then last, third practical thing, read books that help you with the spiritual disciplines. So again, you can refer to this handout here, which lists a number of them. Friends, how are we to find our way out? Simple answer is pursue Christ. How is it that we are to lay hold of Christ? Well, he tells us it's the spiritual disciplines, the very road that he has given us, where we can grow in our relationship with him. Through these things... Through these avenues, we find Christ. We grow to, in our knowledge of Jesus Christ and our knowing of him. And we come to experience Christ's enduring presence through trials. That's what the book of Romans is about. That's what the whole entire scripture is about here. People who are experiencing difficult times. And yet, by God's grace, he gives the apostles and others who wrote scripture so that, they, so that the Christian church would be encouraged and edified and strengthened for their walk of faith. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, we know that in our own strength we can't accomplish this. And even where we can read the Word of God or pray or even fast, Lord, we know from our own personal experience that oftentimes we approach this in our own strength and therefore we don't gain much from it. Lord, we thank you that through the power of your spirit, you work in these things to help impress upon us the truths of your word, to hold out the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that we believe. You bring along with it conviction of sin. You bring along with the word a way out so that we might be able to endure our trials and temptations. Father, we pray that you would help us see that you are glorious. That you are steadfast in your love, that you are a God who is with us. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is God with us, Emmanuel. We thank you, Lord, that in our own desert wandering, so to speak, you, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, are the metaphorical, the symbolic bread of heaven. You are the drink that gives us eternal life, and you are the one on whom we are to feed as you bring about our deliverance and final salvation. Lord, help us love you and treasure you and enjoy you, even in the things like the spiritual disciplines. In your name we pray. Amen.